Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. In this month's bumper edition of the podcast, we're looking at what impact lockdown has had on charities according to the Respond, Recover, Reset project, run by the National Council for Voluntary Organisations, Nottingham Trent University and Sheffield Hallam University. We'll be joined by Dr Daniel King of Nottingham Trent University and NCVO's new Head of Influencing and Networking, Alex Farrow, who will be telling us what the project has revealed about the last lockdown and what information they're gathering for the next wave. But first, what a week for the NCVO, right? Yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it's been all go for them. But NCVO are having a busy week. They are indeed. So for those who, who don't know, who haven't been on the Third Sector website in the last week, and if not, why not? Um, but yes, if you've not been on Twitter, you won't have seen that... Uh, Carl Wilding, uh, the chief executive of the NCVO, has stepped down after just 18 months with immediate effect, essentially saying that he thinks that uh, the organisation needs somebody else to lead it into the future. This story came as such a surprise to everyone on the editorial team. It came in yesterday. Um, We weren't... We definitely weren't expecting it at all. And seemingly, judging by the reactions on Twitter, it's also been a surprise for everybody in the sector as well. I think we're very lucky that we were able to host Carl on the podcast when we did before Christmas. Um, This is a really interesting leadership decision, a really, really interesting moment for the sector, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So Carl has led... uh a restructure of NCBO and kind of really gone about changing its strategy and thinking how it's going to go forward into the future um, and, and yeah, how it's going to change and, uh, and how it needs to change. But then has said, actually, I'm not the person to lead this continuing change. And that's not, you know, I think it's the sort of thing that could sound like a euphemism if it came from a politician, but it, like this is a genuine, this is genuinely the decision he's made. And and I have to say, I do think that's an aspect of leadership we don't talk about often enough, recognising that you may not be the person for the next stage of the job. Um, there have been a number of leaders in the sector um, who have served in roles for like an impressive number of years. Carl's predecessor, Sir Stuart Etherington, among them was at NCVO for... I can't remember the exact figure. Something like 25 years. Like, Something like yeah, 25 like years. An I impressive think. length Something of like. time. Yeah, and no one is doubting that. that- so Stuart and, and other people like him achieved incredible things for the sector and that, it, you know, institutional memory and stability and continuity can be really important in these roles. But in the last few years in the charity sector and, you know, society at large, we've had so many reckonings about how things need to change, whether it's the safeguarding scandal, which threw up not just issues of gender, but questions of how to ensure we're not simply replicating these old Victorian colonial patriarchal attitudes and power structures about who gets help and who deserves help and who is giving out the help and, and and who gets to direct how it works. And then the Black Lives Matter movement as well. These have all shifted the conversation within society, within the charity sector. And I think it's, it's really important that organisations are reflecting on how they can be part of that change. You know, the charity sector is one that is constantly grappling with this question of how to change the world for the better. That's kind of its job. Um, and it's really important for leaders like Carl Wilding to be acknowledging where actually that can start by handing the microphone to someone else. Um, you know, sometimes the person who's been part of the old way of doing things is well positioned to start the change, but maybe they're not the person to bring it into the future. Um, you and I, Emily, know that there is a Hamilton quote for most situations in life. And uh, this one made me think of the uh, Thomas Jefferson line about if there's a fire you're trying to douse, you can't put it out from inside the house. Uh, it's not an absolutely perfect analogy, but it did, did it was what popped into my head. 
I think it makes sense. Um, so Sarah Viber steps up into the interim chief executive's role from her role as the head of public policy at the umbrella body um, while we wait to see who is going to come into the house and take up the top job in the longer term. So a massive good luck to Sarah from everybody on the third sector team. We are certainly wishing you all the best as you help Absolutely. the NCVO through this new transition. Meanwhile, I have seen some suggestions on social media that there is an opening at the Charity Commission that Carl might well want to throw his hat in the ring for. Wouldn't that be a turn up for the books? I think that would be really interesting um, to have somebody so embedded in the sector uh, at the helm of an organisation that regulates the sector. I think that would be uh, somebody who really, really knows it inside and out. It would be an interesting uh, change. Perhaps. Absolutely. Oh, that was too acidic, wasn't it? That wasn't what I meant to say at all. I mean, it was. It was what I meant. I didn't mean to say it. An an evolution, perhaps, for the uh, commission. Maybe we should fire off a a cheeky email and just just float the idea. See what happens. Absolutely. So that's been the the big news of the week. Uh, And that's a bit, that's a nice thing about having a weekly podcast, actually, is being able to reflect like this. So that's been the big news of the week. Shall we, shall we get do an interview? Yeah, let's talk about the NCBO some more. The Respond Recover Reset Project, run by the National Council for Voluntary Organisations with Nottingham Trent University and Sheffield Hallam University, examines the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on the voluntary community and social enterprise organisations. It includes a monthly barometer which provides real-time data about how the pandemic is impacting the working practices and operations of voluntary organisations, as well as their responses, their learning and resilience. So the latest results, which were published last week, looked at the impact of the second lockdown on charities and uses data which was gathered in November. Reassuringly, this research has found that 80% of charities felt better prepared for the second lockdown than they did for the first one. And yet half of respondents still expect an increase in demand for their services over the next month. And 75% expect that COVID-19 will have either a moderate or a significant negative impact on delivering their objectives next year. Here to chat to us about what lessons charities can draw from the most recent barometer data and to talk about what the next round of the survey will focus on, we're joined by Dr Daniel King, Professor of Organisation Studies at Nottingham Trent University. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Hi, Daniel. How's it going? That's good. You? Well, lockdown, lockdown. So yeah, tell us a bit about the study. What does it involve and what are you hoping to find out? So this study came out at the sort of beginning of um, June when we began the project, which really interested in the impact that COVID is having on the voluntary um, sector. So we're looking at um, voluntary community and social enterprise organisations as a whole and seeing the impact it's got on the sector widely and really trying to understand and dig into this. And I think we've really learned some key lessons during COVID about the importance of good data, be able to have something that's responsive, that we can understand and see trends and that we can make actions in both policy and practice in ways that's informed, that's relevant, that's timely and really makes a difference immediately into practice. And that's what we're trying to achieve with this project. 
So there's three strands to the project as well then. We've got the barometer, which is a monthly like temperature check of the impact of the sector and really trying to dig into some of that. We have um, a panel which we'll be doing quarterly, trying to get specific organisations and tracking them over time. And then we've got interviews as well. We're doing 300 in-depth interviews. So we're trying to get behind the headlines, understand what's really going on within, within organisations, learning some lessons and then feeding them back as well. Brilliant. And what have been some of the kind of most intriguing findings from your point of view? I think the biggest thing is when we talk about the sector as a whole, we tend to talk about it as one big group, like a big lump. And I think really what's very clear and quite intriguing is the way in which lots of different organisations had very different responses and reactions to it. Lots of organisations, as we've, you know, we're seeing in the press headlines, are having a difficult time. Um, about 10 to 15 percent are saying, well, they may well not exist in 12 months. And really, obviously, that's a big impact. But also about 15, 20 percent of organisations are actually saying they're doing better. They've be, had access to emergency funding. They've been able to respond quickly. Um, and I think as well, beyond just what the barometer is saying, but the interviews as well, some organisations have been majorly creative, adaptable, able to do things they've never been able to do. So we're seeing really big shifts going on. We've seen a shift, obviously, depending on the way the organisation was set up and funded before, the way the shapes how it can react now. A big shift to grants, obviously, trading income and things like that is down. And I think then also some one of the big challenges, organisations that reacted to the last big crisis to hit the sector, the financial crisis, often pushed away from grants towards trading. They're doing what they thought was the right thing. Some of those are the ones that have been penalised now. So there's some really interesting lessons I think we've got about how do we respond to crises? Do we fix the previous crisis or do we think much more widely? And I think the other part of really coming out is the way in which we think about organisations as, as individuals, but the ecosystem around them, the way the support from um, lots of the infrastructure organisations, the creativity, a lot of the collaboration that was going on, particularly in the early days of the pandemic. So people are able to do new things that they didn't think possible before. Absolutely. And I think um, the fact that sort of 80% of charities were saying that they felt more prepared for the second lockdown is not really surprising. And it's really interesting to hear you talking about the fact that, you know, we've, we've seen, even though they are having immensely challenging um, situations, charities are bouncing back and they, they do have kind of an optimism and they are feeling kind of prepared for the future. Um, are you, would you say you've seen this kind of sense of resilience throughout the different waves of surveys and the different sort of barometers that you've been having since the pandemic or since the research began? I think we've seen quite a few different things around that. So, yes, yeah, certainly a lot around adaptability, a lot of creativity, a lot of things happen very early. And again, drawing not just from the barometer data, but the interviews as well. Organisations very quickly adapted things. And I think one of the interesting lessons is organisations were already moving and trying out digital and then suddenly they're able to do far more of that. And I think there's interesting things about funding as well. So organisations developing this capacity, they didn't know obviously the pandemic would happen and then they could suddenly shift and have things set up. And some organisations that weren't able to, there's a few that we've interviewed where they really just thought, oh, this will blow over in a few weeks. They were offered emergency funding. They didn't receive it because they listened to the prime minister and said, oh, it will be over by spring. They didn't receive those things. They're some of the ones that have been suffering as well. Um, so I think there's some interesting things about our strategic thinking about how we respond in that wider way as well. But huge amounts of adaptability, creativity that's gone on. And I think 
but organizations are also very tired i think there's a lot of exhaustion so lots of focus from um, leadership teams on well-being going on now but it's this idea somebody said to me in an interview very recently that they've been sprinting a marathon and i think a number of charities feel like that yeah we've seen a lot of uh a lot of necessity being the mother of invention, uh, especially in the first weeks of, of the pandemic. And I think what for me was really interesting was that I can remember I did a technology conference um, in February last year and lots of organisations were there talking about the slow uptake of digital among charities and the fact that they were sort of considered behind the curve broadly. Actually, when it came to it, they did adapt, they did innovate and they did extraordinarily creative things. And what will be really interesting looking ahead, I think, will be to see, are we going to see these bedded in for the long term rather than that sort of short term innovative response? How's it going to play out? look into the future as well i think i agree and i think there's some interesting implications as we think through this year and going on and beyond that as well so we've seen for instance you we're all meeting on a virtual meeting now don't need to travel anywhere and i think that's had implications for perhaps those organizations that are more remote um, that don't need to travel but what will happen when we go back to a more physical world will we retain some of these advantages um, so some sort of there's been an equalizing in some ways about um, some organizations that often felt removed from, say, London or um, Edinburgh, wherever the key decision making elements are. And some organizations have been able to be really creative as well. So, you know, they used to have to have people physically in a place for a group and suddenly they can draw facilitators across the whole country. So it's opened up lots of possibilities for some organizations that have been able to pivot and adapt. For other organisations, you know, we shouldn't just present just the positives here. I think there's huge amounts of challenges as well. But I think the digital element is really key. But we've equally learnt the value of face-to-face. You know, I think everybody misses those elements. And we know how core that is so much to the sector as well. So I think there's really interesting questions strategically about where do we go in the future and what type of sector will it look like and how will people want to interact which bits of this will we just do out of necessity and what elements will we want to retain as well i think that's where a lot of uncertainty lies um we've talked a little bit about the financial situation and issues around grants but obviously with that face-to-face uh, the loss of face-to-face one thing that has really been impacted has been fundraising in a big way uh, from the public um, and sort of anecdotally and from other studies, we've been hearing about the dire consequences of the pandemic for charities. Uh, what does the barometer show about the financial situation? I think it really shows a lot of that picture and it really emphasises some of those key points. So we're seeing some organisations that say about 10 to 15 percent or so really just don't know if they'll survive another year or so. Um, some of them have had difficulties accessing the emergency funding and things like that. And a large other number know that their income has been down. And I think we've seen from our study and elsewhere, there's sort of the impacts on reserves and things as well. So I think that's got some long um, consequences. And I think also doing our interviews, a lot of organisations are very concerned what will happen in the next financial year. So there's been a lot of emergency funding and funders have done some very quick adaptions. Um, but also the funders are running out of money as well, particularly those sort of foundations and things. So they rely on the high street, they rely on footfall. So there's a sort of a trickle effect. And I think, again, if we compare this crisis to the last one, the financial crisis you know, was a, a slower burner in terms of we knew the things were happening, but it often grants for a year or two that were playing out. With the financial crisis, if you were trading, it hit you overnight, whereas the demands are still going up. So I think 
the responsiveness of that is is key but i think we're beginning to see you know we talk about long covid but there's also the idea of long covid for charities as well and so the long-term impacts of this again may not be felt for quite a long time uh, some organizations are trying to be innovative they're trying to find new ways of doing that fundraising um, certainly there's obviously been the grants and things like that but i think there's a lot of anxiety what will happen from april onwards um, and I think that's going to be probably even more tricky in some ways than this first wave where there's been a lot of that emergency funding available. And we'll see some of that dry up. So obviously with the barometer and with the research, you've done three distinct waves of research so far. When you look at these data sets and these results side by side, what do they tell you? And why is it so useful to have comparable sets? So there's a lot of things in terms of this. And we've got a dashboard as well, which you can begin to drill down in terms of location. And one of the great advantages of that is that you can compare different um, regions and different countries as well. So we so there's a lot of possibilities there. So whilst we see a number of different barometers going on um, across the country in different regions, um, our one is the biggest UK-wide one. And I think allowing for that, then that means that um, people in different regions and different um, the devolved nations can do that sort of comparative work. So I think there's lots of possibilities there. Doing it as well over the wave. So um, monthly, we begin to see some of the trends and I think over time, our confidence levels in what those trends are telling us um, are important. So whilst there's been in this third wave, it looks like there's less organisations that are worried about the next year. I think what we need to do is look at that on a slightly longer period to really see how that plays out. Um, but I think what it also does by understanding it and seeing it in this picture is that we can begin to get a little bit ahead of the curve um as it were and begin to understand okay what are the types of organizations that are being hit and therefore then whilst there's been a lot of um quick responses from funders perhaps we can be a little bit more targeted in understanding those types of organizations that are being hit um, we're trying to dig a bit deeper into the data so what we're aiming for in another couple of months is a is a bigger more in-depth report where we're trying to get some more granular analysis from effectively what you've got here is some frequency tables and sort of the headlines um, but we'll begin to sort of group organizations as well so there's a lot more we can do with that data um, but we're also working with government and other bodies to really delve into some of that data as well. And that is shaping policy and practice. I just I was interested there that you said um, that we're seeing fewer organisations sort of worrying about how they're going to fare in the next year. Is that a feeling that if they've survived this long, they're going to survive a bit longer or is that hopelessly Pollyanna-ish? I think there's maybe some optimism in that. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things I was trying to also caveat a little bit by saying that, you know, we that was something from one wave and we would like to be able to see, you know, we've got a much higher response in this um, fourth wave as well, which is um, closing very soon. So we will be able to. So I think on a month by month thing, um, I wouldn't put too much store by just one month it drop. It really depends on who fills it in. I think what we need to be looking across is trends. Um, I think also it's about organisations beginning to see, you know, some are able to plan a little bit ahead. Um, some of those organisations that are closing, maybe that is something that's happening soon. I think, though, there is this worry, this number of people in the interviews talk about this cliff edge that's coming up over the next few months when some of that emergency funding drops out. And what does that mean? And of course, we don't really know, you know, what the, the constant changing situation. I mean, we've 
we sent we reported this we were hoping you know suddenly then we got into another lockdown we and the subject of this is lockdown we didn't think when we were even starting to draft the report we would suddenly be in our third national lockdown or firebreak or whatever it is each of the devolved nations have got a different take as well so i think it's that rap it's the uncertainty i think is still playing out hugely for organizations You've now launched the January survey and uh, that, as you mentioned, is closing quite soon. Are you looking at slightly different things in this survey? Is there anything you're expecting to see or is there anything that you're particularly interested in with this one? Yeah, so each um, of the monthly surveys, then we have a topical question which focuses on a set of areas. So this month it's on volunteering and the impact on volunteering and the trends we're seeing around that. We're also interested to go to dive a little bit deeper in future waves around funding, around the responses that infrastructure organisations have had um, and really trying to take each month and to do a little bit more deep dive into certain areas. We're also very open if people have got particular things that they think are the most pertinent areas. We're sort of still in listening mode and we still want to make this as useful as possible for um, policymakers and practitioners as well. So we'd really welcome people engaging with us, talking to us um, about where they would like to take this. We want that the heart of this project is about making data that's useful for people for decision making, for understanding. Um, and I think there's real benefits, even if you're running like I used to run a very small arts um, therapeutic arts organization we're dealing with people you know government levels i think the data's got things to say for everybody and i think a lot of people say well how are other organizations like us doing and that's what we're trying to um, we want to make the data useful to people for that so again we would really welcome feedback thoughts ideas people's experiences and what they would like we've got another 12 months at least for this project we want to make that as useful as possible so if people do want to get in touch with you, uh, how should they do that if they've got those suggestions or if they want to get involved? So we've got a project website and also an email address as well, which I think if you can put in the show notes, that'd be great, which um, yep. we'd love to hear from people, um, not only about um, filling in the barometer and also we try to work with infrastructure organisations to try to feed it out with them and we're piloting a few and things around that but also people have got stories to tell as well so we're really very keen um, to do interviews with people from um, chief execs who to frontline people um, in a whole large and small organizations social enterprises voluntary sector charities as well um, we've got 300 interviews in total which is enormous a qualitative research it's you know, in heaven really we've got so much data there <laughs> Um, and we're really enjoying those sort of conversations that people said to me at the end. Oh, it's really therapeutic spending an hour just reflecting on the last 10 months or so. It's been huge for obviously all of us, but particularly in the um, sector as well. I think an opportunity to take stock like that is great. So um, we've been really open to conversations with people. Well, you heard it here first, listeners. Definitely do get in touch. So if you would like to find out more about the NCVO's research and the work that Daniel is doing with charities, we will have all of the information there in the show notes. Do check that out. And it would be great to get as many different organisations as we can involved. I also caught up with Alex Farrow, the new head of influencing and networking at NCVO. Part of the aim of the Respond, Recover, Reset project is to develop advice for charities to deal with the ongoing effects of the pandemic. So I began by asking him what he felt were the most significant issues raised by the research for charities. So I think there are a few things. 
Uh, I think there's the increasing demand uh, mixed with some of the big financial challenges, uh, mental health uh, and also volunteering. I think those are the, the kind of big headlines. On volunteering, so one of the interesting things that we saw in this month's survey data was that 20% of organisations were recording an increase in the number of volunteers. But just under 20% were also recording a decrease in the number of volunteers. So we're, we're wondering, are there more volunteers or are more volunteers kind of moving around? <laughs> and this presents us with some, some difficult challenges, particularly when it comes to mass vaccinations. So if people who have a kind of willingness to volunteer and to give up their time, and they were doing that before the pandemic with local charities or local organisations, if they're now moving their volunteer time, uh, rather than giving more or there being more volunteers giving time to the mass vaccination programme, what does that mean for the charities who are already facing increased demand, whose staff are already kind of taking time off because they are sick or their loved ones or families need them for caring responsibilities? What's the impact on their ability to deliver services that are also needed? So I think that's something that we, we don't know from this month's data, but it's something that we will be able to ask over the course of the year. And that's, I think, the benefit of this barometer is we'll be able to check in with organisations for the next 12 months and understand this better. The final thing I think that really jumps out for us is around mental health. Um, and uh, your third sector readers uh, will, will also know from the report that the, kind of you published uh, in your article last week, um, that kind of nine out of 10 charity workers say they are feeling stressed, overwhelmed, burnt out from the last year. Um, and we are seeing that in, in the barometer as well. Um, people are juggling an unbelievable amount of stuff, uh, whether that's a changed way in which work happens, whether that's homeschooling, uh, the kind of other responsibilities they might have, and just the general fear and anxiety and worry uh, that comes with living through a pandemic. So we are worried, first of all, for charity workers and volunteers because their health uh, and well-being is important, but also their ability to then deliver uh, services for others who need that support, uh, I think, is also potentially compromised. So a lot of challenges there, a lot of foreboding and kind of I think feel like the major theme of the last year has been coping with change and with uncertainty. Based on this research, what advice would you offer charities to deal with this ongoing change that we're all facing? One of the things I think you, you just mentioned there was we have tried to cope. Um, and I think in some ways we as a sector, we have shown how resilient we are um, when faced with unimaginable crises. This isn't just a, a, a crisis in terms of the pandemic. It's also a social crisis. It's a crisis for our organisations. It's a crisis in terms of finance for our staff, for our volunteers. This isn't one crisis. This is so many crises that we are simultaneously having to grapple with and find different ways of responding to, all while going through a crisis ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. And so really difficult uh, crises to have to kind of understand and process uh, and grapple with. So when it comes to the kind of organisational crisis, and by that I kind of mean... What can what can charities do? How do charities, those working, those volunteers, how can they kind of respond to some of this? I mean, some of this is just around the basics, like having kind of good policies, good processes in place will just mean that organisations aren't scrambling around uh, in a crisis, that we know what to do. Um, 
And we know that some of the way in which we've responded has been to throw out some of these policies and these processes. That's made us nimble and agile. But there are some things that we do just need to have in place. Good systems for keeping our staff well, for recruiting new people in, for supporting people, managing and retaining kind of volunteers and supporting them. It just will be easier under pressure if organisations and people in them know what know what they kind of should be doing. I think there's also about this kind of culture that we want to build in our organisations. Um, and I think just being supportive of people. We know that people are facing just huge stress. We know that the, the wider world is difficult. Demand is up. Finances are down. We are looking to each other for support. Never have we seen relationships in organisations be more important um, because we've needed them in a way in which we, we might not have needed before. So things like the very basics, again, being a virtual organisation means we rely more on those moments to come together, to hang out, to chat, to eat together. Finding space for people to still have those relationships that aren't just about the work mm. will be really useful. It also does mean, uh, and we uh, have seen this uh, across the sector in the last year, we know that sometimes organisations aren't having... The cultures aren't that great. Um, things like uh, the Voice of Change in the Kivo report, looking at kind of equity, diversity and inclusion across the sector, has highlighted what was there before, but has raised the importance of us being very honest about the cultures that we are uh, allowing to prevail in our organisations. Uh, and so some of this is not just about us bringing together and doing the kind of human supportive work that we that we might always have tried to do, but recognising where where are things not working for people and where are some of our cultures and behaviours having a detrimental effect that are only exacerbating the problems uh, that many people might be facing away from work. We are seeing an incredible amount of innovation right now um, and obviously innovation is often one of those words that uh, I mean some some of us will kind of roll our eyes a little bit at the kind of <laughs> word of innovation uh, and some people will be like yeah that, that kind of excites me. Um, it's easy to say, well, the pandemic's been good because we've, we've been able to innovate. People have done that uh, and we have seen a really new way of working. And, and one of the ways, and I think is really positive, um, is the way in which we have kind of networked with each other. Um, and I think we have seen organisations, formal, informal, large, small, come together and collaborate to solve a common problem in ways in which organisational baggage or other things would have prevented them from doing that. Um, and so I think it's one thing that's really positive is using those kind of networks and the, the relationships that we can form across our voluntary sector far more. I think part of that has also been acknowledging where do we need to stop doing certain things? Where is someone else just better placed with better credibility, better legitimacy, better resources to be able to kind of solve a problem? Hmm. We hopefully might have let go of some of our organisational egos or agendas there. Finally, there is never been a kind of a more urgent time for decent leadership in the sector. Now, really, the things that I've mentioned before around networks, collaboration, uh, supporting staff and volunteers, uh, getting the basics in place in terms of good organisational management and running, all of that is underpinned by good leadership. Um, and we, we think that's more than ever is required uh, in the sector the pace of decision making uh, is is enormous um, and it's crucial that we need leaders who can make really good, uh, effective, timely decisions and be able to tell that story well um, and communicate that.
to others. So leadership is going to be really important. Um, I always say with the leaders that I often am working with, part of good leadership is also taking a break uh, because it's really important, not just for your health of leaders, but the health of staff and volunteers and the organisation, because leaders can't make good decisions when they are tired and overwhelmed. Part of that is taking a break. Absolutely. As we said earlier in the episode, if you do want to get in touch with NCVO and be involved in the Impact Barometer, we'll be including more information and and an email address where you can get in touch in the show notes. Uh, You can also visit the NCVO's website and look under policy and research and you'll find uh, more information there. Each week, we're bringing you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story we've spotted in the sector. Emily, I believe we're staying in firmly in the Midlands this week. Is that right? We are. And you know what? This feels really, really timely, just based on everything we've just spoken about with the NCVO research. I think just a really timely reminder that among all of this, this pandemic is still going on. And among it, these organisations are still out there every day doing the absolute best by the people that they exist to support. Um, So my good news this week comes in the form of some really brilliant numbers from the Sheffield-based charity Baby Basics, who, like so many other third sector organisations, have been going out of their way over the last year to support their service users. So Baby Basics was set up in 2009. The charity began after Sheffield's lead midwife for displaced people recognised that the mothers that she worked with were struggling to access the basic essentials and the equipment that they needed in order to look after their newborns. So in response to this growing need for practical help for new mothers, a group of volunteers from the King's Centre Church in Sheffield launched a clothing bank and a place where both midwives and health visitors could request baby equipment for their clients. So every single item that is donated through Baby Basics is donated by someone in the local community and then sorted by its team of volunteers. And the premise of these baby banks is so simple that the charity is now a very well-known and well-used service across Sheffield for midwives and health visitors. And there are new centres which are springing up around the UK the entire time. Baby Basics have just released their 2020 impact report and the numbers are fantastic. In the last year, Baby Basic Centres across the UK have supported more than 20,000 children. And that is an increase of 166% on the previous 12 months. Wow. They've provided more than 3,000 starter packs for mums and newborn babies, more than 10,000 care packages of toiletries or nappies, and more than 8,000 clothing and toy bundles. The charity has also been able to open new centres this year. Its network has now grown to 45 different centres across the UK, and they have more preparing to open in 2021. Chief Executive Kat Ross says that the teams of the staff and volunteers have truly gone above and beyond to ensure that 100% of the referrals the charity received has been fulfilled. So she wrote in this impact report, and I'm not going to try and paraphrase it because I think she put it better than I could. She wrote, We have seen... How much is a country that we rely on our local communities? And Baby Basics is no exception. Without the wonderful support of local communities, we would not have been able to continue to do what we do. From volunteers stepping up and finding new ways to support our work from a social distance, to the general public who've provided so many needed items to us. Every one of our centres across the UK has been overwhelmed by the support that has been shown to them and we, the professionals who refer to us and the families that we support, will be forever grateful. 
I think it is such a powerful reminder that these local charities have never stopped supplying those never more needed services throughout all of it. Um, and so a massive shout out to Baby Basics and to all of the other voluntary organisations who are carrying on throughout it all, despite everything. I think certainly I'm guilty of forgetting this from time to time, even though I work in this sector. Um, you all deserve so much recognition. You deserve so much celebration. You're doing amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And something about that being small and local doesn't mean not having a huge impact. You know, that's 20,000 packs of nappies. That's 20,000 people's lives made just a little bit easier in that one sort of moment where they really, really need it. And that's so important. Um, so, yeah, well done, guys. That's amazing. Snap, snap, snap to Baby Basic. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. Thank you very much to our guests, Dr. Daniel King and to Alex Farrow. And thank you also to our producer, Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week.